Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, presentation of National Review. We're on Twitter, don't you know? You can find the show at political underscore beats. We also invite you to, to subscribe to our feed for new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in, or you can go right to nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab there. You'll find all the podcasts coming from National Review, uh, including ours and all of our back episodes, going all the way back to our number one first episode with Sean Trendy of Real Clear Politics and Van Halen, and then 20 in between, uh, over at nationalreview.com. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My co-host, as always, standing by, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I'm a little fatigued. Scott, I, I've been here in the studio for the past 24 hours, uh, aided with a mixture of alcohol, or Cuervo Gold, as it might be, and uh, maybe some other pharmaceuticals. We've been working on this drum track uh, nonstop. Uh, it, it's actually just a, a straight-up uh, boom-thack, boom-flack, boom-thwack thing, but, you know, we got to get it perfect, because precision, right? precision indeed in fact can't we find other people to do our jobs for us on this episode perhaps people who are more skilled can better pull off the, the show we have in our head maybe well you know you, th you think that's bad but you know wait until I, I get to uh figuring out the uh 17 different people i've lined up to do our music commentary <laughs> we actually have eight have people one of them. that's right eight people are doing this show we're going to pick the best at a later date uh you can find jeff online at uh esoteric cd on twitter and our guest today he is a columnist for bloomberg you can find him on twitter at eli lake he's eli lake eli thank you so much for joining us here on political beats oh thanks so much and i, I really love the podcast so it's, it's an honor to be here uh we appreciate taking some time uh before we get to uh, your band we first ask eli lake what is your political beat what's your job how are you involved in this giant political ecosystem out there uh well i'm a columnist as you said for bloomberg i'm syndicated now in a lot of uh, newspapers and other places uh i am before that i was with the daily beast and newsweek i've written for a uh, staff reporter for the washington times uh, i am a protege of seth lipsky the founder of the new york sun and the former editor of the forward uh, i worked at both places for him um and I mainly focus on national security and foreign policy. Uh, you could say I'm on the center right. Uh, I think my critics would call me a warmonger, although I think that's <laughs> not fair. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, just another one of these journalists in Washington. Uh, I, I've, I've traveled a bit as well. Um, and I lived in one point in Egypt. But, you know, that's, that's pretty much me. <laughs> And as we're going to find out today through this episode of Political Beats, you are a giant fan of the artist you have chosen uh, and, and the sophisticated studio production and the blend of jazz, pop, R&B, and rock that is that is Steely Dan. Uh, and yes. Steely Dan is, um, uh, is, you know, I just, I will, I will say, you know, I first heard Steely Dan, as probably Jeff, I'm going to guess, through classic rock radio and the one thing is you always knew what a Steely Dan song was on because of the very unique vocal stylings of uh, Donald Fagan and because, at, uh, especially toward the latter part of the career, the immaculate production techniques that were used in producing the music. Those songs always stuck out to me as being special, a little unusual, 
and um, I actually borrowed my aunt's uh, copy of Steely Dan, A Decade of Steely Dan, uh, w- and, and put that on one of my blank cassettes and took that around for, for quite a while. And so you know the hits, and then you go back and dig through the albums, and uh, you find that these guys, you know, you think of them as being those the, the, that, that studio perfection, the, the, the masterpiece of, of music toward the end of the career. They were a little loose toward the beginning of their career. They had a little fun. There's some different sounds. There was an actual band, in fact, you know, regular players early on in the career. Uh, and so they're pretty well-known via classic rock radio, but there are those who go deeper in the catalog and sort of appreciate all the band, well, the two guys, brought to the table. Jeff? Oh, I'm sorry. I screwed up my, my cues here. I throw it. Ah. <laughs> I throw it to our guest. The floor is yours. Eli Lake, we need you to tell us how you got into Steely Dan. Why do you like their music so much? And why should everybody else care about this band? All right. Well, I should say that I, I was introduced to Steely Dan because when I was um, in high school, on the weekends, my job was working as a band boy where I'd set up for a wedding and a wedding and bar mitzvah band. And the musicians uh, who were older than me um, kind of, you know, I was like a little cousin, a little brother to them. And I would ask them, you know, what is the music that you listen to? And I myself was, I mean, I was, I, I played piano, though I wasn't, you know, serious about it. I never thought I would be doing it for my career or anything. And they all were huge Steely Dan fans. And that's how I became introduced to it and of course i had heard them on classic rock radio like you um but what i found is that um once you started diving in uh yes the hits are great like reeling in the years my old school the stuff that you would hear on the radio, but the weirder stuff was like this wonderful acquired taste. And it has become for me something like a secret society. Um, so I think a lot of Steely Dan songs are almost like these inside jokes between hmm. Walter Becker and Donald Fagan. And those of us who love the band are in on that inside joke, but it is a very acquired taste um, because I think if you just... I, I, I believe that they sort of are the they, they explain this fine line between butter and brie, which is to say that on the surface, especially their later stuff, would sound a little bit like the kind of fusiony, schlocky jazz mm-hmm. if you didn't give it much of a listen. But then when you concentrate, you realize a song like Deacon Blues is a brilliant kind of lush story. And the saxophone solo is not just some throwaway uh, filler, but is, you know, sort of the brilliant playing. I think if that's Wayne Shorter on that, though, I don't hold me to it. I know that he's Wayne Shorter plays the solo on Asia. And as somebody who was also into uh, just straight ahead jazz and was being introduced in high school to that kind of music, 
because Steely Dan themselves were such fans of the jazz music and they incorporated it into it, it was really fun to kind of catch those musical references, which are throughout all of their records. Um, and then finally, there is the lyrics, which are not like most rock bands, which mm -hmm. are about falling in love or falling out of love or being angry. <laughs> um, they're, they're, they are like uh, the name, of course, is borrowed from the William Burroughs novels, The Dildo and Naked Lunch. But mo mo their songs are these sketches of these totally low-life characters like you would read in a George Bellicano's novel, um, gritty, drug-addicted people, um, hustlers, con artists. And that was also really interesting to me. Um, and finally, it's something else that you mentioned, which is uh, at the end of the career, when you're talking about Asia, um, Gaucho, and uh, I, would, I would argue also Royal Scam, mm -hmm. you begin to see a kind of perfectionism that um, produces something that's really extraordinary when you listen to it. And um, again, it's easy to miss uh, if it's just on in the background. But when you really focus in on a song like Peg, it's much more complicated uh, and it's much more layered than um, kind of first listen. And it rewards to this day. I mean, I, it's, you know, there's things that I listened to when I was in high school that are kind of boring now. I know it all, but I, I never really grow tired of Steely Dan, and, and I'd say it's almost that, I know it's, it's a cliche to say this, but, you know, I always kind of find maybe something new that I hadn't heard before because it's such well-crafted, uh, intricate music. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I, and I just think that they, when they hit, when they're at their best, the lyrically too, they really do hit, um, you know, these, these, a real, it's a real artistic accomplishment. Sort of, they are ironic perfectionists who at their best moments produce perfect irony. <laughs> That's actually pretty well put. Um, for me, Steely Dan, and, I, and it's funny, of course, Scott and I, have, you know, it seems that we have pretty similar kind of like experiences you know, growing up probably in almost exactly the same time frame. But my first Steely Dan album, and this was a college experience for me exclusively. I didn't get into them until after I went to college. It was that greatest hits compilation, A Decade of Steely Dan. And I got it um, for the same reason I would imagine that most people um, get a Steely Dan compilation. You know, get the first thing that they've gotten by that band. It's because, you know, I wanted to hear Reeling in the Ears. Um, I wanted to hear Do It Again. Believe it or not, those were the only two songs that I knew prior to buying that album. Well, actually, I knew Peg, but I didn't know that that was a Steely Dan song. This is another thing about this band, that sometimes their pop craftsmanship is so perfect, so assured that they can almost become self-effacing. You know, they come up with these perfect things that that you don't even realize are quite steely Dan numbers until you go back and you explore the discography. The funny thing about that compilation is I was not that impressed. I remember thinking to myself, oh, well, I like these, these two hits that I bought it for. You know what? I really like that other one, my old school. But then I went and looked at the other. It's kind of got some pretty interesting selections. Like they throw on East St. Louis Toodaloo for some reason, which is an interesting instrumental from Pretzel Lobby, but it's certainly not the highlight of that record. Um, there were a lot of songs on that record that I just thought were curious choices, but I still knew that there's something going on with this band. So I did what, what any good music lover with a lot of student loan cash to burn does, and I said, screw it, and I bought the box set next. I just got the whole Dan discography at once. Citizen Steely Dan has every single thing they ever recorded, uh, minus a couple of random like early singles that they hate. Um, and then I was hooked. And it was at that point when I heard all the rest of this band's material from Can't Buy a Thrill all the way on to Gaucho, which is, well, I think actually a pretty horrible album, um, that I realized that the breadth and the depth of their material 
was so surpassingly great and the craftsmanship of it was so unlike anything else that you would have normally associated with 70s pop rock that it made me really you know i wouldn't say stand up and pay attention i sat down and i paid attention i sat down and i focused intently on it because all of these songs um were kind of like weird um candies like sweet and sour candies where like you know like, like the surface of it it's all very sweet and sugary and then you know you bite into it when you get to the center it's this very bitter sour core in the middle of it that, that it, it makes it you know a pretty tough pill to swallow uh once you realize what a lot of these songs are about these hidden meetings freighted uh within you know otherwise you know smooth charging easy you know easy going or like hard rocking good radio ready music um, and then you realize they're as eli said writing about you know you know drug addicts hustlers junkies losers prostitutes uh, the losers of the world, or you know, people um, in uh, some pretty dire situations. I found that fascinating. But the other thing I think that's interesting to note about the Dan is how they are true songwriters in the purest sense of the world. In the word, there isn't a single Steely Dan album that is a concept album. None of their songs like segue together. They aren't assembled as suites. Every single thing they ever released is a discrete tune that was written, composed on its own put out on its own, stands on its own two legs or falls, for that matter, as a song. They didn't care about any of the other trappings of sort of rock music and rock albums that a lot of other bands did. And and I think it, it you know, maybe has something to do with their origins. They started out working in the Brill building as songwriters, and then they were contract writers in Los Angeles later on. Uh, but this is a pure songwriters band, in that every single piece of music they put out was sort of designed to be its own, you know, its own statement, to stand on its own and not to necessarily even have to be contextualized with any other thing on the album it comes from or surrounding it. Uh, and that doesn't mean that you don't see a real evolution in the band sound. You really do. Uh, but what I'm really fascinated by them is how they, they were really completely indifferent to all the other stuff that rock groups of that era really got into, these sort of pretentious you know, big artistic statements. No, 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 no. Steely Dan was all about putting everything into one song and letting that song speak for itself. And that's one of the reasons why I love them so much. So Jeff got into the origin of the band a little bit. Becker and Fagan met at uh, Bard College, which will come up again in a particular song uh, in a bit. They started playing in, in local groups. Uh, one group featured Chevy Chase. Yes, that Chevy Chase on drums. Uh, they went uh, uh, to Brooklyn in 69, started to sell, try to sell their tunes to the Brill building, the, the, the songwriting building. Uh, There's some demos, some bootlegs out there of some of the songs from that era. Then it played with Jig and the Americans for about a year and a half. <laughs> started, a great matchup. Yeah, started writing their, I mean, they were already writing their own tunes, but realized that their songs perhaps were too complex for other artists to take on. And so they had a, uh, uh, a, a producer, Gary Katz, who basically said, uh, why don't you guys form your own band? Do it yourself. And so they did. Uh, and they put together a, a, a pretty decent band with uh, uh, Skunk Baxter on guitar, uh, Jim Hotter on, on drums, David Palmer, kind of a blue-eyed soul vocalist, because Fagan was not comfortable with singing his own songs, by and large, early on in the band's uh, career. And they put out album number one, which is, um, I don't know, it's probably the most... Uh, Typically, rock album of the Steely Dan offerings. Some of the the, the jazz um, uh, touches weren't as obvious on "Can't Buy a Thrill," and it also 
contains perhaps their two best-known songs due to classic rock radio. Do It Again, the very first song on the very first album, and Reelin' In The Years. And you know sometimes great songs are great just because they're so freaking great. And uh, Reelin' In The Years is one of those for me. I When... Uh, when Becker died, I, I went through the Steely Dan collection, obviously, and started listening to songs over and over again. And I couldn't get Real in, in the Years out of rotation for a week and a half. Every part of that song is, is perfect. Uh, that energetic drum rhythm, that descending melody through the, the verses, and, and then the straining sing-along type chorus with, with the bitter glee in the voice of Donald Fagan when he spits out, you've been telling me you were a genius since you were 17, and all the time I've known you, I still don't know what you mean. Uh, setting the template for Steely Dan lyrics, uh, the simple, cold, uh, sharp edge to many, many of their songs, and a historically great uh, solo from Elliot Randall. So good. If you're not playing air guitar, uh, uh, even when you're driving, which can be dangerous, but uh, to Elliot Randall with Reeling of the Years, I don't know what the heck you're doing. What a fantastic song. If Apocryphal Legend is anything to go by, that's Jimmy Page's favorite guitar solo of all time. Yeah, I, I have heard that which as is, well. You know, pretty good choice. It's, yeah, not bad. You've been telling me you're a genius since you were 17. In all the time I've known you, I still don't know what you mean. The weekend at the college didn't turn out like you planned. Things that pass for knowledge I can't understand Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? Uh, the rest of the album, I, I, I've always been a big fan of Dirty Work, too. It's one of the tracks that has oh, David yeah. Palmer vocals on it. Um, in terms of, of narratives, it's one of the more emotional, more straight songs in the Steely, Steely Dan catalog. Uh, the story of an affair sung by the man who is, knows that he's being used but can't end the relationship. Great sax solo from Jerome Richardson. A sweet vocal performance by David Palmer over some, somewhat rotten lyrics. Uh, meaning not bad lyrics, but lyrics about bad things going on, which is a whole lot of Steely Dan lyrics through the years. And the, the upward modulating, modulating chorus and the sing-along toward the end, the repeated chorus line through the coda of the song. I've always been a big fan of, of dirty work as well. Um, so Can't Buy a Thrill is a fine, fine introduction to the band, though things would, would change very quickly even into uh, the next album. Um, Eli, your thoughts on, on Can't Buy a Thrill? Um I love it. It's it's not my favorite Celia Dan record, but um, I, I I think that you're right that the hits on it are great, but the non-hits. Um, I'm a huge fan of the song Kings. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I think it, in some ways uh, the esoteric um, subject matter of it is a, a glimpse of of the of the kind of stretching that the band would do later on. Uh, and, Isn't it about Nixon, uh, or, or am I misreading that? I always thought it was about Richard Nixon. I, it's like, yeah, Nixon. in some ways, it's like their version of Won't Get Fooled Again. You know, we've seen the last of Good King Richard, you know, bring out the past for Good King. You know, it's sort of like, you know, the nothing really changes. Yeah. 
I'm a I'm sort of sentimental of, for the song Brooklyn, which is another Palmer uh, sung song, uh, and I just think it's it's just a beautiful kind of reminiscent song. It reminds me a little bit of the later song uh, Bad Sneakers, which is another kind of you know reminiscing about New York and things that you love about New York, and it's 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 so specific. Um, so those are those Kings in Brooklyn are kind of my low key favorites, but I really I don't think there's a bad song on the record, um, which I I know I'm going to sound re- repetitive. I, I say that about quite a few of these Steely Dan records to come, uh, and uh, you know definitely worth your time to 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 pick up and listen to you know it straight through. I wouldn't I would actually agree with Eli. I don't think there is a bad song on Can't Buy a Thrill. I think the closest uh, you might get to that is Change of the Guard, which is just a little generic. Um, yeah. And, and I'm not a big fan of Dirty Work. I know everyone else likes it. It, it was a single. Um, I don't know. David Palmer's voice is just it's just too damn wussy, even for that lyric. I get the fact that there's a contrast between, you know, his sort of fey, sensitive voice and, you know, the, the, the harsh realities of that lyric. But, man, he doesn't bring it off. I completely agree with Eli that he absolutely delivers Brooklyn as the charmer under me wonderfully. That is, that is I would have actually... You know, Eli stole my thunder when I was going to say that if you're talking about my favorite sort of non-hit song on Camp I Thrill, it's probably Brooklyn. The other two that I would name are uh, the the last song on that record, Turn That Heartbeat Over Again, which to me almost feels in a way like the beginning of weird Steely Dan. All, yes, all of Steely Dan's music yeah. have like you know, these weird twists to their lyrics and these quirks to them. But, you know, this is, this, this is a song that begins, you know, with Donald Fagan saying, you know, with a stocking face – I bought a gun. He's going to commit a robbery. <laughs> He's going to go ahead and hold up the 7-Eleven or something like that. And then it just sort of develops from there. And I don't actually know what the literal scandal those lyrics are about. But it's less about them than it is about the wonderful, wonderful development of that melody. And the first time that Fagan delivered a great vocal. He really, you know, he sings the hell out of that. They look at my face and stumble to the door. I mean, that he really goes. I didn't do, sing it in the the way he hit the falsetto <laughs> there, but I could. Um, the other one I want to say, uh, you, Eli, yeah. No, I just want to say that you're, you're pointing out something that that if you just looked at the, the great thing about Celia Dan is that Fagan does most of the vocals, except on this record. That you know he's no Roger Daltrey. No. You know he he he's no Robert Plant. Uh, he's not a great vocalist, um, but the, it's like these songs are so perfectly crafted for him mm-hmm. that it's in, in some cases, even though there have been some great Steely Dan covers, which I hope we can talk about, that it's almost like they're that only I can imagine him singing them. And he he delivers it, even though he doesn't have a traditionally wonderful voice. Um, but I, you know, I can't do without it. Yeah, I mean, and speaking of guys who don't necessarily have traditionally wonderful voices, I really actually like the. Uh... You know, the random song that the drummer sings, uh, Midnight Cruiser, which has Jim Hodder, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. their drummer on it. Uh, just uh, again, this one is, is kind of that slow mid tempo thing, which does smack a little bit too much of the sort of early 70s sort of light rock tropes that uh, this album, more than any other Steely Dan record, kind of is guilty of. But man, that is a, that's a rock solid chord progression, verse, chorus development. 
It's a great song. And of course, any discussion of Can't Buy a Thrill would be incomplete if we didn't talk about Do It Again, which is the opening song on the record. It is one of Steely Dan's most famous songs. I think actually their biggest hit, their biggest commercial hit. I think about, actually Ricky Don't Lose Ricky. that number. Yeah, that went to number four. Is, okay, maybe that one did a little better, but this is right up there behind Ricky. I mean, and this is a song, if you listen to the lyrics, about a, a loser who is such a loser that he can't even successfully get himself killed. Uh, he he can't even get himself hanged. He's so he's that right. bad at life. He, he's a failure at everything, and he just keeps on going back, Jack, to do it again. He'll turn it around and around. And uh, the best part about that song isn't even the great lyrics, the great melody and chorus. It's the fantastic solo. Yeah. Um, the 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 first solo, I think it's played by Denny Diaz on an electric sitar. It's not a guitar solo. It's this very kind of angular, funky, splunky, electric sitar playing. And then it goes into like a, a child's keyboard played by, uh, I think, Walter Becker. Uh, and it sounds wonderful and, and very, very bizarre. And right from the beginning announces that, you know, this is a band that, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever you may think about the easiness with which these songs go down, every single nook and cranny of it's just stuffed with eccentricity that repays Political Beats, Steely Dan is what we're talking about today. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Eli Lake, columnist for Bloomberg. Check them out at Eli Lake on Twitter. Album two, Countdown to Ecstasy. No hits off it at the time. I mean, no big hits. Uh, And one of the last albums, as we'll get deeper, written really for a live band because they they did not tour very much after Countdown to Ecstasy uh, until reforming in, in the 1990s. Um, but it did expand the sound from the first album, musically a bit riskier. Again, more of those jazz flourishes coming through. And the lyrics are just as strong, as, as Jeff mentioned earlier. Wise asses with some really good pop hooks on this album. My Old School is the uh, yeah. is the one that most people will know. Uh, again, just kind of the weirdness. You know, Chevy Chase was in the band. In this uh, song, it tells the story of a, uh, a drug bust at Bard College while the guys were there. Uh, who was the DA prosecuting that case behind it all? G. G. Gordon Liddy. Liddy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> everything just comes together sometimes. Uh, but I love, I do love my old school. They have the bouncing piano, the swinging horns. Uh, and that strong, you know, story narrative uh, to, to my old my old school. It's uh, it's just a, that wonderful piano through and through that song is, is wonderful. Uh, deeper into the album, I, I, I like Showbiz Kids quite a bit. This oh, yeah. bluesy vamp. Um, it was the first single from the album, which is a really weird choice for a first single. Um, that explains why it didn't go very much, but uh, it didn't go ver- uh, very far, I should say. Hedonism in Los Angeles, uh, the people in Los Angeles. They had Angeles. to edit out the punchline of that song. Correct. Um, 
which is you know showbiz kids making movies of themselves, and they don't give an f about anybody else. Yeah. Which is absolutely a perfect summary of everything Los Angeles like music and Hollywood culture is about. But man, that that, that doesn't go on the radio. Yeah. It, it's got a real drive to it. Uh, you know, to the song, uh, real drive to the beat. Rick Derringer. Uh, hired Gun, as uh, would become more and more prevalent, plays the slide guitar solo. Uh, it's really a great tune. And I also want to point out, you know, they people think of, you know, the kind of fusion-y jazz from Steely Dan, but they did a lot of things, other things really well. You know, Reeling in the Years from the first album, just a straight-out rock track. Pearl of the Quarter is a wonderful country-flavored love song. They use slide guitar, not just on Pearl of the Quarter, but through the especially early part of the career to great effect. And, and Pearl of the Quarter is really a wonderful song. Some some real advancements from Countdown to Ecstasy. And I, for one at least, uh, I really do enjoy hearing, you know, the, the songs that are written to be performed live. And Countdown to Ecstasy, again, is one of the last times Steely Dan would write with that in mind. This is their best album. I mean, I, I, I you know, I've gone over this scientifically i've done my research <laughs> I, I, know, I know for a fact that i can prove it with science that this is their best album uh, as much as i love some of their later work by most of their later work countdown to ecstasy is uh yes as uh, scott said it's that moment where you know they're still playing as a live act they're writing songs that you know they're meant to be performed live and they're far more raucous even though there's nothing in steely dan that's ever purely 100 percent rock um, then, you know, the stuff that they would get into later on, on albums like Katie Lied or even Pretzel Logic for that matter. I want to single out. First of all, the first half of this album, I think, is perfect. Bodhisattva is it is the song that was written specifically for my tastes and my <laughs> personal worldview. It makes fun of all like, you know, the, the cheap and easy new age hocus pocus, you know, people in Los Angeles, you know, Doing you know Zen yoga poses and thinking they're communing with the great uh, the great you know collective uh, you know and, and instead here are Becker and Fagan just completely you know pissing all over you know that attitude by saying yeah can you show me uh, the shine of your Japan the sparkle of your China can you show me Bodhisattva I'm gonna sell my house in town I'm gonna go you know, he's just making fun of, of of you know the the way the hippie ethos turned into this sort of zen new age eastern mysticism ethos and that is almost secondary to the incredible incredible instrumental music on this i could die for the jazzy piano changes on this song i just every time i hear fagin comping and then i hear i don't know if it's denny diaz or if it's jeff skunk baxter he's playing the, the lead guitar solo on this especially that final flourish that ends the whole thing but it's some of the most incredible, incredible electric guitar on any Steely Dan song that you will ever hear. And the other thing that's worth pointing out is that the band itself is an ensemble. It's hot as mm -hmm. hell. This thing just cooks. They, they, there's a live version of it out there. shows you they could absolutely bring it off live, too, even though it didn't have quite the layering. But every aspect of this is sort of like almost the, the sort of the platonic ideal of a Steely Dan rock song.
album doesn't stop there. I think Razor Boy, probably one of the most unappreciated songs of their entire career. The Boston Rag is um, maybe one of my five favorite songs by them of all time. I like that one quite a bit too, yeah. Just for that instrumental intro, that magnificent loping instrumental intro. It just takes its time and it builds and it builds. And then it goes into that, you know, that Baxter guitar riff, which actually sounds almost, you know, elegiac, which is the last thing you would expect from Steely Dan. Everything on this album is great, except, ironically enough, in my opinion, for Pearl of the Quarter, which is the one that Scott hmm. singled out. That's my least favorite song on the record. I don't think it's a bad song. I just think, you know, okay, yeah, it's another Steely Dan ode to a prostitute. They, they have so many of them. At this point. <laughs> you know, how, how, many, how many songs of theirs are about hookers or you know, women who sleep around? They're just a shocking amount. I think you could fill up two hands if you actually checked it out. You know, from Josie all the way to Pearl of the Quarter, they got a lot of them. Um, but yes, this album from Bodhisattva all the way to the King of the World, which is about surviving a nuclear apocalypse. Because hey, why not? You know, well, let's just write a song about that. Every song on this has something incredible to offer it, offer you. I can't recommend this this album enough. Um, well, first of all, I agree. It's a it's a great record. Um, I would just I, and I largely co-sign with almost what the both of you said. Um, I, I I like Pearl of the Quarter. I think it's a sweet song, and I think it's it's unique because it is that is it, there are not that many Steely song Steely Dan songs that have that country influence, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go back to Showbiz Kids, which is my favorite track on the record. Um, I love this song for so many reasons, and just a couple details that I love about it. One, it's a lyric which is he mispronounces deliberately coup de gras so saying coupe de grasse which i think is brilliant <laughs> um because i think he's almost like making fun of um you know these self-obsessed you know pseudo sophisticates in los angeles right i think showbiz kids in some ways you know showbiz kids you know um making movies of themselves i mean it's, it's, it's uh, predicting the era that we're in right now where uh, <laughs> selfies and you know youtube videos and you know youtube stars and so forth um and there's a little just a, a, a moment in the song when he's they're saying and they've got the steely dan t-shirts where you hear just a snippet of the solo from reeling in the years which i thought was such a great detail um <laughs> that uh that really makes it i think you know, I'm giving it away. It's one of my favorites. I'm putting that on my top five. Come on. 
Um, but so Showbiz Kids would have made it a great record alone. And the fact that you also have Bodhisattva, which I can't agree enough, is um, a tour de force uh, and has some of the just the most brilliant playing on it. Um, that is kind of like the Steely Dan song that you would play for um, somebody who, you know, is like a huge Steve Vai fan, you know, mm. who loves these rock guitar gods and mm. you say Flash guitar solos. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is this is this is how it's done. <laughs> you know. Um, and um, I agree with you. I love the Fagan lyrics and the biting um, irony of it. Um, and another one, and I, I, I hate to say this because, you know, I'm going to say this in a couple of these. I don't think there's a bad song on this record. I, I, and it's another uh, it, start to finish. And um, it's important, I'd say, one other thing about it. It's the first one, I think, where they really start bringing in some of the, these professional studio musicians uh, to add to it. You mentioned Derringer's uh, slide guitar and Showbiz Kids. Um, but you've got, uh, I think it's the first record that Victor Feldman comes on, yeah. who is a marimba vibraphone player. Who yeah, he, plays, he plays the vibes over songs like Razor Boy and stuff like that. Right. Uh, and so you're beginning to see Seely Dan um, picking the best of those L.A. studio musicians, which are going to be such a huge part of albums later on, like Asia. Um, so while this, you're right, this is the like sort of last record they make that is designed to be played live by a band. It's also the first one where you're starting to see them kind of evolve into um, this, the precision studio band that uh, reaches its apex with this, with Asia. And so this actually takes us to uh, uh, the next album uh, in 1974, which is Pretzel Logic. Now this is nominally the last album with the original Steely Dan band, which mm -hmm. is to say, you know, not only Becker and Fagan, but you know, Skunk Baxter, Danny Diaz, Jim Hodder, but in reality, they weren't really there for it. This is a, an album that is the first one, really, that's almost entirely like a studio pros coming in, playing various songs. They did go out and tour it briefly, but the tours quickly canceled. And then after that, Steely Day never played another single live concert until they reunited in the mid-90s. So this is the beginning, in some ways, of their studio-bound years. But in other ways, it feels like the real end of an era because this is just – it's. It's a strange left turn. It's both a kind of rock-oriented album. It's not like the, the jazzier stuff that they would get into immediately after this, really. But it's also nothing like Countdown to Ecstasy. Countdown to Ecstasy has lots of these long workouts, sort of guitar flash showcases. You know, you have you know really great guitar solos, keyboard solos. There's even a little drum solo in here or there. Um, Pretzel Logic is, is 11 songs... And all of them are very brief miniatures. There's this, the, the longest song on this is Ricky Don't Lose That Number. And the only reason that Ricky Don't Lose That Number, which is the big hit from the record, is that long is that it opens with like a minute of random like marimba and vibraphone, right. you know, jazz uh, playing that is completely unconnected to the rest of the song. But the rest of these things are just bite-sized morsels. And a lot of people, I think you know, Eli even brought this up when we were doing our little pre-show, you know, comparing notes. You know, Robert Christgau, who's one of my favorite, uh, you know, 70s rock critics, gave this one of his rare A-pluses, said this is the peak of Steely Dan. I don't agree with that. For the first time, I can actually say that there are songs on this record that are not good. I do not like Monkey in Your Soul. I think it's just generic, bluesy stuff that, that's, you know, beneath them, that they could do much better if they had, if they had you know, worked out something else. And, in fact, I believe Becker and Fagan pointed out that, like, this is the point where – they were running out of new songs and so they had to go back and plunder their old songbook, the stuff that they had done before they started out with the band. When they were still contract writers, they brought 
out like Charlie Freak and Barrytown. These are old, old songs. Those are both great songs. And so what you have is, is a shockingly diverse record. Any major dude will tell you is a, a really sweet acoustic guitar ballad, essentially. It's acoustic guitars and keyboards. And it's the first kind of, I guess, what I would say is a positive and consolatory song that you'll ever see from Steely Dan up until this point. It's basically just you know a message from from Donald Fagan to the character in the song saying, "Listen, man, you think you think you've got it hard, but listen, I can tell you there are, there are worse things out there in this world. There are, you can survive these problems. You'll do better." Which is not what you would expect from a band that normally trades on cynicism and really hard bitten lyrics. I never seen you looking so bad, my funky one. You tell me that your super fine mind has come undone. Any major dude with half a heart surely will tell you, my friend. Any minor world that breaks apart falls together again. When the demon is at your door, in the morning it won't be there no more. Any major dude will tell you. Any major dude. Everything on this record, with a gun, Parker's band, crew with Buzz, I love so much of this. I just think there are a couple of tracks that don't quite make it, and that keeps it from the top slot in my opinion. I don't know where, I think Eli's with me. I, I If I'm ranking them, uh, Pretzel Logic is number one for me. This was a very, you know, perhaps the golden era, Countdown to Ecstasy, which Jeff loves, and Pretzel Logic, which uh, I love, and I think Eli loves too. Um I, I think it's their best it's effort from, from start to finish. Uh, again, sometimes the singles are singles and hits for a reason. Ricky Don't Lose That Number has just the most graceful, gorgeous melody to it. Again, a fairly straight-ahead song. People sometimes try to divine weird things and Steely Dan lyrics that aren't there. This is, uh, as far as the songwriters tell us, uh, just about a college crush about a girl named Ricky. Uh, and again, the most successful single of their career went to number four, more of those cutting lyrics, right? You tell yourself you're not my kind, but you don't even know your mind. I just um, assumed it was about a prostitute again. I always do that when I <laughs> um, Deeper in the album, um, I, I love pretzel logic, a bluesy shuffle, um, ostensibly about time travel, you know, the lyrics. Uh, I, I kind of think it's a, almost an allegory for their dislike of, of touring so much. But it's a very intricate, dark, witty uh, song. And I love the solo section that rich blend of lead guitar and sax and trumpet and trombone and piano. Boy, does that sound magnificent. The center of that Pretzel Logic song. Cause he looks so fine up on that hill. They tell me he was lonely, he's lonely still. Those days are gone forever, over a long time ago. Jeff mentioned With a Gun, which has kind of a birdsy twang to it. And Charlie Freak is a song that grew on me through the, the years. Just the way that piano gets locked in completely 
with the beat. And um, you know the story is uh, the story of the song and about a guy who bought a ring from a, a bum basically, and the bum used the cash to overdose and, and die. And, and the guy is is uh, not happy about that and wants to return the ring, but it's it's too late. Of course, the guy's dead. And it's it's got these ringing like almost jingle bell Christmas bells. It's three quarters of the way through the song too. Uh, so you take you know what lesson you can from the lyrics, I suppose. But I think start to finish, uh, Pretzel Logic, again, is, is the tightest album. As Jeff mentioned, it's length. And, and they tell all these, these stories and these character profiles in about three minutes or so. Just a great, great album. Okay, Go no, on, on Pretzel Logic, um, I'm closer to Jeff on this. I think it's, I, I, I think it's a great record, but um, it's not my number one. Um, I, for me, I love Night by Night, uh, which I think is uh, a preview of what we're going to hear in two albums on Royal Scam, which is for me, one of the peaks for Steely Dan. Um, and I think that this is a great record because it shows you the bridge to where Steely Dan's going. And the fact that they are taking some of those old songs, uh, I 100% agree with Jeff about Barrytown, it is a great song. And I feel like Barrytown, um, maybe Charlie Freak could have been on um, Can't Buy a Thrill uh, or, or Countdown to Ecstasy. Um, I, I, I don't dislike this album. I think it's I think it's a great accomplishment. I just compared to it's not my it's compared. To, there there are probably three other Steely Dan records I like more than it, but it doesn't take anything away from it. Um, I think Pretzel Logic is very interesting musically. It feels to me like Chain Lightning Part One, <laughs> um, and uh, but it is I've seen them live and it's 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 always great when they play that um, and. Um, I guess can't say much more about it. I mean, it's definitely something that you should pick up. And it is interesting that this is, it's not just Chris Gow. I think that a lot of the critics of the time felt that this was the best of Steely Dan and they did give it their, they said this is their, their best record. So that's something to keep in mind. I, I would disagree, but that's, <laughs> that's, it's not to take anything away from it. I think it's a terrific record. Uh, transitioning uh, both musically and, 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 and in terms of what, what would the band output would be and the band members, to, uh, to Katie Lied, which is uh, the, the next album, you, you saw far more uh, L.A. studio pros on the album. Uh, I think Michael McDonald makes his very first appearance on this album as a, as a backing vocalist. Um, it's a little smoother, I think, than, than Pretzel Logic. And uh, the songs themselves, um, there's a couple I like. You know, I, 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 this is not one of my, well, there's only seven to choose from, right? But it's, this is not one I'd put in my upper echelon of Steely Dan. I do love Black Friday. You know, I worked in uh, commercial radio for a long time, and I'm always working the day after Thanksgiving, and so this song would be, would be played every day after Thanksgiving, of course, as people would make their way to the shopping malls. Uh, a, a very tense and, and nervy kind of backbeat to it. Uh, like Black, Black Friday quite a bit. Daddy Don't Live in that New York City uh, no more. Uh, Larry Carlton has a great guitar solo. The, the stylized vocals, kind of a shimmering effect put on them and i do love the groove i guess i i wrote down in my notes kind of a new york city groove i think of you know the ace fraley song which is called new york groove but that's that, that kind of new york groove that it has to it
I like that song quite a bit. And later on in the album, any world that I'm that I'm welcome to uh, is is kind of one of those misfit Steely Dan songs. You know, they're talking about prostitutes or misfits or criminals. P- take your pick, I, I guess, for Steely Dan uh, uh, themes in music. Uh, that's got a great set of lyrics from, I believe, uh, Fagan, and and and, and well delivered as well. So I, I like Katie Lied less so than, than I think the previous two albums and actually less so than, than the Royal Scam, which is coming next. But there's still some good stuff from, from the band on the album. Um, can I go? Absolutely. Okay. So I adore Katie Lied. <laughs> um, it's like a member of my family almost. I just love this record. Um, for me, the two standout tracks are Bad Sneakers and Dr. Wu. Um, Bad Sneakers is... Uh, it's it's a sketch of somebody who is in Los Angeles who very much misses New York, and uh, it's so, and and it captures it in these little moments. Bad sneakers in a pina colada, my friend, stomping on the avenue, on Radio City, you know, transistor with a large sum of money to spend. Um, and you're right, I think Michael McDonald uh, really kind of completes the perfect Steely Dan for me. Uh, they use him great on these records and you hear him on bad sneakers any world that i'm welcome to and dr yep. Wu, he sounds just it, it it adds another dimension to it uh and uh it's interesting because skunk baxter is an original member of celia dan who then goes to the doobie brothers and it's almost like in this period it feels a little bit like celia dan is stealing michael mcdonald from the doobie brothers of course <laughs> michael mcdonald is sort of slowly taking over the doobie brothers um and making them in my view much better than they were when they started um then I'd like to just talk a little bit about Dr. Wu, which I just think is one of these songs that is timeless. Um, it is a, the, it's kind of the prototype Steely Dan song. It is uh, about uh, kicking a dope habit. Uh, I've been waiting for the taste you said you'd bring to me. Uh, Biscayne Bay, where the Cuban gentlemen sleep all day. Um, it, it, it's just, it, it kind of it's, it brings you in and it's actually based on a real Dr. Wu who I think helped Becker or uh, maybe Fagan, I don't know who, one of them actually kick a drug habit. Um, and, you know, that's where you get the title, uh, Katie Lied. Uh, you know, you could see it in her eyes. Um, and it's one of these songs that it, when you hear it at first, if you just sort of let it pass through, you, it, it, you don't catch it, but you start to pay attention to the music and the lyrics. And I just think it's just one of those masterpieces. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I, I love this album. Um, I guess I would, I, I agree with you, by the way, I love daddy. Don't live in that New York city no more. I'm so glad that I was able to see last year in one of his last concerts, Walter Becker performed that, um, which was a, which I'm glad I saw, mm-hmm. um, we miss him. Um, and, uh, another one of those where I guess you could maybe argue that throwback the little ones is not great. Um, 
but I really like every song on the on this record pretty much, but particularly Bad Sneakers and Dr. Wu. I just think those are just two of the essential Steely Dan songs. Uh, and uh, I would I would recommend everybody listen to them. I mean, I, I actually couldn't agree more with everything that, that Eli said. Katie Lied is an album that I love inordinately. And I love it despite the fact that I, in my brain, I know that the second half of this record isn't nearly as good as the first half of it. Uh, but the first half of this record is not only fantastic. I mean, it's five songs. It's Black Friday, Bad Sneakers, Rose Darling, which no one has mentioned, but I love the chorus in that song. Um, and yes. Daddy Don't Live in that New York City. And then it ends with Dr. Wu. Uh, but what I find to be funny about it is that that side of the album in particular is almost like a little five-song mini-suite. You know, I just said earlier in the show that, you know, Steely Dan wasn't into conceptual albums. Well, they weren't. But unintentionally, perhaps... They wrote five songs that feel more about New York City than you could ever get from a bunch of guys living in Los Angeles. And clearly this is because they're New Yorkers and they still miss that area. And obviously, you know, they come from there and a lot of their, their references and, and their, their sort of regional, you know, regional reference are going to be from New York. But, you know, you start with Black Friday with the stockbrokers throwing themselves down the 14th floor, you know, balconies. That That's very much a Wall Street thing. And then you have Bad Sneakers, which... You know, as Eli just, you know, very eloquently explained, it's really about, you know, being in New York and, you know, and really or missing it, too. Daddy Don't Live. And then I think of Rose Darling and Dr. Wu as sort of like urban vignettes. They don't feel like they're Los Angeles vignettes. Every one of these songs is great. Dr. Wu, as Eli said, is a song that is great when it's played by, you know, you know, the slickest studio professionals in the world for Steely Dan. And it's great when it's played by the Minutemen on Double yeah. Nickels on the Dime in a live version that, that's almost hacked out. It's actually funny how they simplify the chords because, you know, that's the joke. It's you know, it's, it's one of the jazziest chord changes, chord change sequences, you know, uh, of the mid '70s. And instead, you have you know the Minutemen, which is guitar, drums, bass, reducing it to a live arrangement, and it still sounds great. It's a song that, in its actual bones, is just really well written. The only problem with Katie Lott is that the second half of this record isn't nearly as good. I like Any World That I'm Welcome To, and I actually really like Your Gold Teeth part two uh which is you know not the most creative way to name a song uh, the first your gold teeth was on countdown to ecstasy your gold teeth two is actually the superior song it's a much more energetic piece uh very kind of you know flashy jazz piano chops um and shorter for all of that as well uh but i don't like chain lightning i don't like the let's show porn to minors uh theme song of everyone's gone to the movies and throw back the little ones seems again kind of like the way I felt about uh, "Monkey in Your Soul" from Pretzel Logic. It's after an album that you know is pretty kind of splendid and really takes a lot of chances and really kind of like, is very painstakingly crafted. It just seems like a bit of a toss-up. Like, uh, ah, all right, hey, we're done. Adios, everybody. I don't really think "Throw Back the Little Ones" has much to offer, and this barely missed making my top two Steely <laughs> Dan albums. 
but I think it comes in at number three for me just on the strength of that first half. I could listen to Bad Sneakers and Dr. Wu um, forever, and, and I think yeah. they are among the best of Steely Dan's entire career. This is Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beat. Subscribe to our feed for episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in, listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews, please. You can find us at nationalreview.com as well. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Eli Lake with us today. At Eli Lake, a columnist for Bloomberg. And Steely Dan is the band. Uh, the Royal Scam is next. Uh, this is one of my... God, this album sucks. See, I know. We're going to have some oh. friction here a little bit. Because I love uh, I love the Royal Scam. I love the song cycle of uh, the, these repeated themes of escape. And uh, as I saw it described somewhere as urban desperados. I like that, too. Look, it's a dark album. It's about as bitter and sarcastic as Steely Dan gets. And that's saying something. But I love it. I love it from pretty much start to finish. Um, Kid Charlemagne, I, I mentioned this on Twitter today before the taping. Every every time we do this prep, uh, there's one song that gets stuck in my head and it won't leave. And this time around for Steely Dan, it is Kid Charlemagne. Uh, what a great, great song. This combination of a, like a funk rhythm and jazz harmonies. Uh, Larry Carlton, the guitarist, plays an amazing guitar solo in, in Kid Charlemagne in this this kind of slowly increasing tension, the, the story of the, the rise and fall of a, a drug dealer, perhaps uh, Owsley Stanley, the big LSD chemist. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, the first verse, he celebrated. The second verse, he's finding out his clients are, are dead or they're getting clean. And that last verse is just full of this paranoia. Who's going to turn in this, this famed drug dealer? Uh, Kid Charlemagne's a great track. Clean this mess up, else we'll all end up in jail. And I always have loved Don't Take Me Alive. Again, it's one of the more straightforward narrative songs in the in the catalog. Becker, Becker and Fagan don't even play a note on this track. They're already overwhelmed by their their kind of ringers who are coming in to play the, uh, the, uh, the music portions of these songs. But that menacing chord progression, I love uh, a killer, uh, criminal daring cops to take him out. I've always been a big fan of Don't Take Me Alive. You go deeper in the album, there's good stuff. Haitian Divorce has this uh, amazing amplified voice box, guitar box solo that you just don't hear anywhere anymore, and a, kind of a semi-reggae vibe to it as well. Um, I, I, I like the Royal Scam, the last uh, track on the album, quite a bit as well. This tense marching drum beat through all the open spaces in this song, and the lyrics about these uh, these people wandering into this glittering wasteland, which is uh, probably uh, New York City ghettos at that point, these uh, uh, refugees, immigrants uh, coming in. I, I like the Royal Scam. Look, it's I understand why people don't like it as much as I do. It's it's dark. It's not quite what you expect from from Steely Dan. Uh, the the songs uh, the song topics again is 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 very bitter. The lyrics are bitter, but I I love the whole cycle in the Royal Scam. It's a great album. 
that's not the reason I don't like it, Scott. I don't like it because the music is mostly crap. Come on, let's address this fact. There are three songs on the Royal Scam that almost sound like tonal rewrites of one another. Kid Charlemagne, Don't Take Me Alive, and the title track, The Royal Scam, are all set in the same key and have a very similar groove to one another. The Fez and Green Earrings both have that same mid-tempo disco groove. Haitian Divorce is a song best left unspoken about. The horrible Peter Frampton-esque talk box solo on that out on that song is just a blight upon Steely Dan's discography. However, I'm gonna you know give you my grudging praise for "Don't Take Me Alive," which I think of all the three songs on that album that kind of sound similar to me. "Don't Take Me Alive" is the best, uh, certainly the most complex quarterly, uh, and I like that. And then the one that I really actually like, without having to say anything grudging about, is I really love "Sign and Stranger." Oh yes. Got a beautiful, beautiful piano, uh, uh, piano part by Paul Griffin, who was one of the great kind of studio pianists of all time. He played on Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. If you ever heard uh, uh, "One of Us Must Know Sooner or Later" uh, off of Blonde on Blonde, that's Paul Griffin playing the piano on that, uh, which is just one of the most magnificent, you know, crescendo, majestic moments in Dylan's entire discography. Well, he plays on "Sign and Stranger," uh, and he sounds really wonderful on it too. He also co-wrote the next one on the record, which is the Fez, which is again just kind of a silly, you know, metaphor for not wanting to wear a condom. Ain't gonna do it without the Fez on. Oh, you know, it's just I don't know. It's trite to me. It doesn't, it doesn't have any real substance. Well, so many other songs had some deeper substance to it. It just feels silly. But the groove is pretty addictive, I have to say. But so much of the rest of this album, though, just feels very anonymous to me. It feels like they said, well, you know what, we're gonna play a little funk here. We're going to do a little soul grooving. We're going to do a little disco. You know, these were all hip, trendy things, and they don't embarrass themselves. There's nothing on this record that's going to make you actually groan. A Haitian Divorce, I think, is actually pretty bad. I hate that guitar <laughs> solo, Haitian Divorce. But there's nothing on this record that's actually, like, you know, forehead slappingly awful. It's just undistinguished, which is really depressing from Steely Dan, given the prior four albums that they had put out, um, which were all magnificent records. It all had a lot of character and like you know very weird eccentricities to them. The eccentricities on this record are located mostly in their lyrics, uh, which for me at least isn't nearly enough to get them across because I focus on the music and the music here just does not interest me. Now, Eli, tell me why I'm an idiot. Well, um, I I would argue that for me, Royal Scam is it's Royal Scam, Katie Lied, and Asia, which I it's it's hard for me to pick between those three, um, but. I, I mean, you're, you're correct that Sign and Stranger is a masterpiece. Um, the lyrics are so weird. It is um, about, as best as I can tell, uh, an intergalactic planet where, uh, you know, people on the run from the space authorities go to have their identities erased. Yeah, that's, that's um, kind of what I got from it, too. Okay. Um, and, and so, I mean, 
who ever wrote a song about that? Um, so, um, you know, and uh, Kid Charlemagne, uh, I just think it's important to appreciate the lyrics of that, which yeah. I think, uh, you know, Scott, you captured a little bit of it. I love that um, at the end when he's, you know, about to be caught, you know, is there gas in the car? Yes, there's gas, gas in the, the car. car. <laughs> you know, you know, don't let the people down the hall know who you are. You know, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. Um, and so and, and the music kind of, you know, captures that uh, we should we should sort of play that because it, 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 it captures that paranoia and that movement and uh, that, you know, just frenetic spirit. Um, uh, some songs that weren't talked about um, that I really love, uh, The Caves of Altamira, um, which uh, is about, you know, finding the original art, you know, before there was any Hollywood, as he says. Um, uh, I always really like that. Uh, I'm also a huge fan of Don't Take Me Alive. Um, I, again, I think the, the the lyric writing on that is another um, small it's thing, fantastic. you know, um, yeah. agents of the law, luckless pedestrians. I know you're out there with your rage in your eyes and your megaphones. That's fantastic. Come on. Agents of the law, luckless pedestrians. You know, addressing, I, I always, th I, I realized, I think this is about um, uh, a, a sort of stick-up artist on the run uh, or a bank, a bank, uh, a bank heist. But I always thought it was about the clock tower killer at the University of Texas in Austin um, for that first part of it. Um, and I'm always reminded of, like, Don't Take Me Alive when, uh, you know, they finally found Saddam Hussein in the spider hole or the, you know, authorities that surrounded the house of Slobodan Milosevic. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I would say that there is one clunker on this. Green Earrings is a little bit of a, of a repetitive. I don't, you know, that's, that's not, it's not a great song by any stretch. Disagree very much on Haitian Divorce. I think it's, it's um, in this period, there are uh, a lot of rockers who are experimenting, you know, with reggae, with the success of Bob Marley and the Wailers. Um, I think Haitian Divorce is pretty successful, although I agree with you that, you know, the Frampton-esque solo uh, is a little bit overdone, but I think it's a clever song. Um, you know, I, and again, I love the writing. So in love, the preacher's face turned red. Um, and I would also shout out, and I know, you know, I've almost named every song on the record, but everything you did <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. is a great song. And there is a little bit of trivia in this um, because uh, this is the beginning of what I think is a faux rivalry between Celia Dan and the Eagles, because in that there's a lyric in everything you do, and it's, you know, you know, um, turn up the eagles, the neighbors are listening. Uh, and then allegedly uh, in the song Hotel California, they responded with they stabbed them with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. Um, so uh, and then I'd say another important thing about uh, Royal Scam, which will become really evident on uh, the next album, Asia, uh, which is, you know, the uh, sort of a, many would say the peak of Steely Dan 
is uh, Bernard Pretty Purdy, who is yeah. one of the great studio drummers of the 70s uh, and is on probably most of your favorite, you know, Stoll records. Um, he is on this album, uh, and I think he gives it that uh, funk sensibility, uh, you know, on a lot of these tracks. Um, uh, I would just sort of end this discussion by asking, uh, can any of you, can either of you tell me, what is the royal scam about? <laughs> I, I've never figured it out. Is it, they wandered into the city of St. John. Okay, is that San Juan? You know, without a dime. You know, <laughs> is this just a sort of metaphor for, you know, you know the conquest of, of uh, European conquest of the New World? And Well, I've always seen it as, as being a... I think I mentioned, I kind of see the city as... I know they say... Uh, was it St. John or whatever they say? But I've always seen it more of like a New York City kind of thing, uh, with the, the you know the glistening towers and and then and then kind of the the poor areas and the ghettos, uh, where perhaps these new people thinking they're going to find the ability to to uh, to grasp the brass ring, so to speak, don't find that at all, ended up living in in, in sort of the, the slums. That's where I've always gone with it. Yeah, actually, Scott basically took my interpretation. I think it's about sort of like the. Uh the the falsity of uh, you know the dream of city living, especially in New York City, kind of reminds me of sort of like you know the Ponce de Leon story, you know the Indian soldier right. story about you know the fountain of youth. They were like you know, the, the conquistadors were told about cities of gold, and you know, what do they find? The grimy reality of it was obviously never what it was sold to be, and yet they're the ones to blame for believing in such an obvious fantasy or a fairy tale. I feel like that kind of comes into play. It's an interesting lyric. Look, most Sealy Day lyrics are never anything less than uh, at least reasonably interesting, unless it's the Fez we're talking about. <laughs> but uh, again, I'll just say that the music on that song doesn't really do much to grab me. You know, what does it say to me that I think the best songs on the Royal Scam were the two that were left off the album, which are uh, Here at the Western World, which is sort of like an outtake that only got released on a Greatest Hits, um, but it's a really fine song, a ballad. They didn't have any ballads on this record. And the other one is uh, Third World Man, which is actually the last song on Gaucho. They had to sort of dredge it up from the Royal Scam Sessions, where it had basically been completed but left off the record uh, because of some horrible studio mishap that happened to a song that they were working on. Um, but those two songs I actually prefer a good deal more than almost every single song on this album, with the exception of Sign and Stranger. Uh, however... However, the same cannot be said for the next album, which is, uh, I think we all agree here, probably one of the finest records of the 1970s. Certainly the record that you would throw on first if you wanted to test your, uh, the audio fidelity of your speaker <laughs> system, your hi-fi. Um, and probably the single greatest example of jazz rock fusion to ever exist. I think you know, this is a field that has its own subgenre. These these things have been attempted many times. Uh, you know, maybe uh, talk talk on laughing stock going in a completely different direction. Got there too, but in a very different way. But if we're talking about one of the greatest jazz rock records, and also just a pop rock record, just screw screw categories. Just a fantastic record. Period. Steely Dan's Asia fits all of those descriptions, and I especially after the Royal Scam, which I thought was such a letdown. This is a miracle. This is the peak of their music, really, I think, to most people. And although I prefer Countdown maybe just a little bit more, I can't argue with anybody who thinks this. What a magnificent record. What a masterpiece. 
I dare you to find the flaw on it because I certainly haven't been able to, and I've been listening to it for 20 years. I think that the, the songs in here are magnificent, of course, and it demands, it's one of the albums that demands headphone listening. You have to hear the intricacies. You have to hear what goes into it. They used 40-plus musicians on this album to put to tape what was actually in their heads. Uh, and, and there's some amazing stuff. I want to point out, I want to point out Peg, uh, which might not be, I, I don't know if people think it's, it's not one of the better songs of the album. I mean, they're all good. But I've always loved Peg. I think it is. That's a great song. Yeah, it's a great song. It, you know, it's near disco beat, and and you know you notice things sometimes. I I don't know if I noticed it quite as specifically as I did this time, which is through Peg. There's this guitar uh, picking just behind the drums through the verses that is beautiful. It sounds wonderful. It's one of those touches that 99% of people aren't even going to notice. But if you listen, and you listen closely, as kind of Eli mentioned earlier, you hear it, and it means so much to the song. There's a tremendous horn section that comes in behind the second verse of the song. Great solo. This is the I alluded to this in the beginning. They, you know, they brought eight different people in, eight different guitar experts, eight different ace guitar players in to play this solo, and uh, they they went with the last one that they that they had on on tape. Michael McDonald's doing backing vocals on Peg. Peg's a wonderful, wonderful song. Um, and you know, someone else can go a little deeper into the, the title track. Uh, but again, when you talk about peak Steely Dan, that, that, that's about it right there. The way they build everything on top of each other, harmonies on top of harmonies and chords on top of chords. Uh, Asia's a great song. And uh, I guess I also want to mention, I got the news, which, uh, which is an you know, album track, not one that actually gets played on the radio all that often, if at all. But it's got a very non, you know, it's nonstop energy to that track, a very shifty start-stop rhythm to it. And again, that first bridge, I think it's the first bridge when Michael McDonald basically takes the vocals over. I mean, he's not backing anymore. He's just singing the the, uh, the bridge part it is, is wonderful. And from start to finish, it's hard to find, as Jeff mentioned, a, a downside to anything on Asia, except for the fact that we'll put out that uh, for much of my life, I called this Aja because how the heck would I know? I'm just reading the, the name in a, in, a, in a Rolling Stone book of, of music. Uh, and then I, I found out at some point. So, yes, Asia, like the continent. Uh, Eli. I love this record. Um, it is definitely going to be one of my top two. Um, I, I, as it has in my view, one of the perfect New York songs in Black Cow, uh, which again brings us back to you know where it all starts for them. Um, uh, you know, kind of a nice bookend to Bad Sneakers. Uh, I love Home at Last. Home at Last is their sort of mini tone poem to try to capture uh, the Odyssey and uh, the Iliad, and it's. It's brilliant. Um, and the really just thick, clunky kind of chords in the piano. Uh, it was something that when I was 17, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how to play. 
and it's just a song that I, I don't know a musician who doesn't like it. Um, uh, we should say Deacon Blues got a lot of radio play, um, and uh, it really goes right up to that line between Butter and Brie. Yeah. Um, but when you listen to the lyrics and you realize it's sort of about uh, a self-reflecting moment for another loser, I want a name for the, they got a name for the winners in the world. I want a name when I lose. They call Alabama the Crimson Tide, call me Deacon Blues. Um, you know, it's, again, uh, they're, Fagan and Becker are such great song, like lyricists as well. Um, there are a couple things that are important to note about this record. Um, you hit it, it, it is a great, it is probably the best example of jazz rock fusion. I, I would throw in maybe uh, the Chicago Transit Authority has some moments, yeah, there's some yeah. blood, sweat, and tears too that I would say uh, are successful fusion of that. But um, the fact that you have some of the leading jazz musicians who are on this record, Lee Rittenauer, uh, Larry Carlton, who's 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 plays on a lot of these records. Uh, Wayne Shorter, who, if you're a jazz head like I am, um, he was in Miles Davis's group, Art Blakey's group. One of the great kind of post-bop tenor players uh, is has the solo in Asia, and it really is the centerpiece of that brilliant song. Um, Don't forget Victor worth, Feldman, who's back all over. the Victor Feldman, too. right? Who's 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 now obviously not his first right. So there's a ton of this great. These great players on it. Um, there's a really good VH1 behind. I don't know, is it behind the music? Um, or the it's classic a classic album. Yeah, it's yeah. the classic right. albums, the you know, sort of documentary series. Yeah, it's really good. They do one on Asia, and they do one on Asia, which gets into how just unrelenting uh, Fagan and Becker were, where they would have two separate bands that would play the same thing, and they were really great takes, and they would say, okay, thanks, we've heard enough, and I think there were, like, what, seven or eight people who came in and played that guitar solo for Peg, and ultimately they went with Jay Graydon, um, who would go on to have some success as a songwriter himself. Uh, I think he penned uh, Turn Your Love Around for George Benson and other, uh, this is sort of the beginning or, you know, of his peak as a, as a session player and um, in production, so uh, it's brilliant. Um, there is an argument that Asia, as great it as is, um, depends on how you feel about it, um, is partially responsible for the genre of yacht rock. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but no, it's responsible and, for Medesky, Martin, and Wood. That's what it's responsible for. <laughs> okay, right. I mean, but you could argue that, you know, this is, they've perfected this sound. And there, so there are bad things that you could, I mean, I, first of all, I should say I kind of like yacht rock. I'm not a, I'm not against it. I, 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 I think you know, I, I could I, we could do this show on Kenny Loggins, but I'm not saying we will. But anyway, I'm just saying I, I, I but a lot of people don't agree with me on that. I understand that. And I think in some cases you could say that because they were able to get these brilliant musicians together, they got such a refined song. There's not a wasted note. There's kind of everything is is exactly as they want it. It did create a template for a kind of schlocky, antiseptic um dentist office style you know jazzy fusion that you would hear on things like the grp label and things like that later on i don't blame steely dan for that i think that this is too uh the lyrics and the structure is too interesting they're not as um i guess you know that they're 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 far too disciplined but it did it, it was important in that respect and kind of inspiring some genre of you know some styles of music that we would we could probably do without but again, I agree with uh, both of you. There's not a bad song on this. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, get, get some great headphones, put them on, and, and just uh, you know, it, listen. It's 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 brilliant. And I should also say, Black Cow sampled very successfully by uh, Lord Tariq and Peter Guns some 20 years later for Uptown Baby. <laughs> uh, 
So it's <laughs> it, it, this is one of those records that you know both jazz nerds, rock nerds, people like us, we we love, and it's known to many in the hip hop community because it because of the sample there, and also Peg, yeah, uh, yeah that's all. for one of the De La Soul records yes. songs. I know, yeah, I know. It's a fantastic song. Yeah, so yeah, I, I, you know, Asia's great. Get it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I should probably just, you know, summarize my uh, my thoughts on Asia by saying buy this album and leave it at that. But I, Yeah, buy it. It's brilliant. Right. Buy this you album. Fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm going to just go on to say a couple more things. I think it's interesting that you talk about, you know, butter and brie or chalk and cheese, as it were, when it comes to Deacon Blues. I never had that problem with it. I always have found this to be one of Steely Dan's greatest songs. And I think the reason I think it's so great is actually because of the lyrics, which finally – finally see some of the i don't know how you characterize it properly the uh, you know the bitterness and you know the sarcasm and yeah. the rage of becker and fagan's lyrics melt away and it's left with this very kind of just you know thoughtful and um you know sad because he, this is a song about the losers of the world but the yeah. emotion is very real and it's very honest you know you see what is it uh you know you, know, you call me a fool, you think it's a crazy scheme, but this one's for real. I already bought the dream. It's useless to ask me why, so just throw a kiss and say goodbye. I'm going to make it this time, and I'm ready to cross that fine line. And what is this dream, you know? Oh, I'm just going to be a jazz burnout, you know, the classic <laughs> phrase. You know, learn to work the saxophone. I'll play just what I feel. I'll drink scotch whiskey all night long and die behind the wheel. What a great line. What a great chorus. Um, I, I agree with you. It, yeah, yeah, that's what saves it. That's why it's not in the Brie category. I agree with you. Right, because the lyric is, is both resigned. You know, it's a story about, a, you know, a guy who, who, who hasn't made it and is just sort of a burnout in life. But it's not a, you know, snarky or angry thing. It's actually, it finds something noble and something to like and to love and to even admire in a weird way about the choices the guy made that brought him to this position in life. It is a narrative in a way. It's not obviously... An autobiographical song, but I think actually I remember reading an interview with Fagan where he said, like, you know, I wrote that, you know, uh, from the point of view of my teenage self. You know, Fagan was a jazz lover when he was a kid. You know, just thinking about, well, you know, thinking about what the life would be as sort of like, you know, a, a would-be jazz great, think like Chet Baker, you know, something like that, you know, who had the real talent but didn't quite make it. So there's a romanticization of the whole thing that I think is just really appealing. I would I, I would say that's so interesting about that is that Deacon Blues for me is one of the most forget Celia Dan one of the most middle aged songs you can imagine. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> so mature. It's, right. So it's like funny that he thought of this kind of it was about he was writing from the perspective of when he was a teenager because it doesn't have any of that uh, hubris and overzealous confidence and and it's just the resignation of it of somebody who feels that in so many ways they've wasted their lives because. They, you know, they've already bought the dream, but they're not there. And you're right, and, and that's what makes it such an essential 
song and, and, and worth listening to. My point about Butter and Brie for Deacon Blues is that, again, yeah. if you just heard it on the background, it right. sounds a little bit like, you know, something that the Little River Band would come up with. I mean, as the, the, guy, the guy who played on it, the, the saxophonist, I can't remember his name, but he was actually, it's not um, Wayne Shorter. It's actually the saxophonist for the Johnny Carson Show's band. Yeah. yeah. Was, you know, I, I right. came in and I laid it down in the session. And then like, you know, four months later, I'm hearing it in every bathroom in the <laughs> United States. Right, you know when I go when I go to take a whiz, so that, that's the point is that you hear that in the background with the, you know the you know the really nice like saxophone. You're like, yeah, right. Yeah, this is real chill groove. It's not what that's about at all. It's a much more sort of elegiac, sad song underneath when you drill down. You know the essence of what Steely Dan is about. You know you've got to go through that initial you know. You know the sweet rapper uh, to to find the real the real substantive core underneath. Uh, you guys have talked so much about the rest of the songs on Asia that I don't want to waste our time with it. I will just single out the title track. Uh, the title track Asia, I think, is uh, one of the greatest achievements uh, that Steely Dan ever did, and it's a very difficult song to do justice to, even in a show like this, because you really want to have like you know an hour just to break it down. It's practically a sonata. It's an impossible song. And I say this as somebody who actually sat down and before I knew that this was, you know, a pointless folly, I tried to play it on guitar. <laughs> I tried to play it on piano. Uh, good luck, son. You can't do that. The entire song was constructed to be unable to be played by any instrument, any single instrument. It has chords and clusters. It has uh, phrasings that are impossible for any human hand or any instrument, solo instrument, to actually pull off. It's all about the way the music interacts with one another these players all interact with one another to create this magnificent again a very positive song from steely dan this is a song about escaping you know from the horrible hustle of everyday life to the beautiful and somewhat exotic woman that you live with at home who enables you to you know have a respite from the rat race that you otherwise live in and it has that exotic lyric that, that, that goes to match, you know, he's, you know, the Chinese music under the banyan trees, Chinese music always sets me free. Angular banjos sound good to me. Asia, when all my dime dancing is through, I'm going to run to you. And then it has, again, that Wayne Shorter solo. But the thing about that Wayne Shorter solo that needs to be singled out is not only is it the center of the song, not only is it a masterpiece, it's, it's the single greatest thing he ever did outside of the jazz milieu. Because Wayne Shorter, of course, if you haven't heard Miles Davis's second great quintet or Art Blakey's Genesis, oh, yeah. holy crap, you're just missing out. But uh, a fantastic, fantastic solo. But underneath it is uh, maybe my favorite example of a drum solo in all of rock music, played by a guy named Steve Gadd, who's just one of these L.A. studio hotshots, who just does this magnificently. It almost feels like Tony Williams. Tony Williams was, of course, uh, the drummer for Miles' second quintet. Had a really explosive style uh, that 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 really cut up the beat and, and destroyed you know natural rhythms and just you know felt very free and very natural. And Gad gets something of that feel when he plays underneath shorter solo, and it is electrifying for a song that is actually a very peaceable and sort of smooth melodic glide through jazz chords and the jazz sequence. You've got this explosion of sound in the center of it that that turns Asia from just a very nice and well-constructed pop song or you know jazz rock song 
into something truly singular uh, in, in late 70s music. Nobody else ever made a song that sounded like this. As I said, this album may be responsible for the careers of Medeski, Martin, and Wood, and a bunch of other jazz rock schlockmeisters. <laughs> but none of them ever came close to equaling this. And they all tried. And I, I just I can't recommend enough folks. You know, you don't find this on the greatest hits albums. You're going to have to buy the record to hear it. Check it out. Political Beats, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Eli Lake, at Eli Lake on Twitter, columnist for Bloomberg, talking Steely Dan. It brings us to the end of the original run of the band and the album Gaucho from 1980. This is not a particularly well-loved album. And if you listen, what you'll hear is um, a precise, studied uh, experiment in uh, in in the music that the band was was putting out again 40 plus musicians take part here and the the songs are actually i, I guess i want to say more simplistic than than in past albums uh the melodies are a little simpler it's more groove based or atmospheric a- atmospheric uh feel to the music becker had kind of checked out due to uh drugs and uh had a, had a girlfriend die and so i don't know if it was just before or just after the album um so he had checked out largely. You had uh, label issues. You had uh, engineer issues. Someone uh, erased an entire song that they had been working on forever, and they instead of trying to recreate it, they said, forget about it. Um, and what you're left with is is an album that, that ended the initial run. Um, hey 19 is... I, I, I've always liked Hey 19. So I, I think of what you know Fagan and Becker were trying to do on Gaucho, Hey 19 is the best example of it. Although it still feels kind of plastic and artificial in a way you know the uh the story of, a, of an older guy well older you know probably mid-30s trying to pick up a 17 18 year old and the things that worked way back in 67 aren't working anymore and you're left at the end with the cuervo gold and the fine colombian we don't know if he's alone or if perhaps he is still with someone but you know the asides toward the end the you know the sure looks good and skate a little lower now it's Oh, me, oh yeah, keep skating. Like she's like the girl on the roller rink. That's yeah. the part that really makes me cringe. Like, it, ooh, she must be like smacking her big bubble gum while she's doing it. Ooh, gosh, that's like you know, you're cradle robbing there. By it, the way, can I point out that Donald Fagan was 32 years old when he wrote yes. that? He wasn't exactly an old guy. <laughs>
title track I, I, I like. Uh, it's got a soaring chorus to it. The saxophone sound sounds uh, really great. There's songs like, um, what is it, uh, Glamorous Profession. Um, but boy, it just seems to me like a, a glossy, meandering kind of song. It doesn't do a whole lot. Even Babylon Sisters, which isn't too bad uh, of a track, doesn't really go anywhere outside of the great halftime shuffle beat played by uh, Bernard Purdy, which uh, Eli mentioned earlier. He's just a tremendous uh, drummer. There's like no release to this album. It's all build up. It's all this really tightly wrapped lyrics, this tightly wrapped instrumentation, and there's no release to it. And outside of Hey 19, I don't like a whole lot on Gaucho. I think this album sounds like a vampire sunk its teeth into the necks of Donald Fagan and Walter Becker and drained their souls from their bodies. It is nominally the same kind of band, same kind of sound as you hear on Asia, uh, but the spirit is gone for the most part. And, and it just feels like the feeling is almost entirely dead. And I think, you know, three years in the making, that, you know, that suggests problems right there. Normally albums that have such incredibly protracted birthing phases <laughs> end up sounding pretty bad. You know, I mean, you know, other, if, unless it's Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones, usually it doesn't end up turning out well. Uh, I would say that the title track, Gaucho, probably the best song on this record. Of course, that's the one that they actually, I sort of subconsciously stole from Keith Jarrett and ended up having to credit right. him for it. Time Out of Mind is also pretty good. It's at least certainly happier than the rest of the record, which is ironic because, of course, it's about heroin, um, you know, chasing the dragon and all of that. But yeah, yeah just, I mean, yeah. You know, other than that, I just find that, that there's just so little energy on this record. And it's, you could just almost tell that the, the band was just done. Becker and Fagan were just tired of it. It's just no secret that they stopped. Stopped moving, stopped collaborating, stopped doing anything together for, you know, almost a decade afterwards. I think Becker actually ended up moving to Hawaii and, like, drying out because he was, like, severely addicted to drugs at this point, which I think also plays a role in this. I think Fagan was a little bit, you know, irked at having to sort of hold up, you know, both halves of this partnership uh, with only one person really participating. You know, you know, Jeff, you, yeah. th you think of all the bands that just utterly collapsed inside themselves at the end of that decade, the Eagles yeah. in the long run. Gaucho and Steely Dan, Tusk and Fleetwood Mac. Um, you know, it's just they were so they were so big and there was they were working so hard and back then they you know they were cranking out albums. They were well Steely Dan wasn't touring, but the other others were touring too, and they, to take all this time to put together an album uh, like The Long Run or Tusk or Gaucho, it's just man, you can hear the weariness inside of virtually yeah. every track. Yeah, there's, there's there's just no thrill, which is really, really ironic when we get to Sort of what happens next after this, but I'm going to save that for a second. I want Eli to put his two cents in on Gaucho. Um, I think you're generally right. This does feel like an exhausted record. I credit Steely Dan for not 
giving in to what would have been the kind of hip move, which would have tried to introduce punk elements or new wave uh, and sticking with, you know, play punk music. (laughs) No, I know, but I'm just saying that, uh, you know, there was something in the air in the late seventies where if you wanted sort of to be musically relevant, uh, you would have tried to do something like that or, you know, so they sort of stuck with the playbook from Asia, but without, you know, the songwriting is not nearly as good. Um, I do think that Hey 19 is you know, kind of a, one of the staples, you know, of the Steely Dan canon. And I don't know if it was a hit, but it was certainly something, it's certainly something that is, you know, when they were touring, you know, was one of their big, you know, sort of showstopper numbers. Um, I like my rival. Uh, I know not a lot, everyone does, but it's, um, but yes, if you compare this to, in my view, Royal Scam, Katie Lied, Countdown to Ecstasy, Asia, it doesn't, it, it, it's not on the same level. And, uh, you know, there, there are elements there uh, for those of us who really love the band. You know, we're glad they gave us these seven songs, I guess, but um, it doesn't have the same energy. Um, and, and it's the one I would say of their initial output that I would just say not essential. <laughs> I agree. And the funny thing about it is that how could this album be so non-essential? And yet Donald Fagan, because the Steely Dan breaks up here, you know, they release the album in an exhausted, you know, uh, you know, collapse. They break up. You know, it's mutual. It's not even bad blood so much as is. they both realize, listen, I'm just tired of this. You know, we got we got to do something different. And then what happens is that Donald Fagan releases his first solo album. Now, you would think as bad as Gaucho was that this would be a real dire mess. But it's the exact opposite. 1982's The Nightfly, this is Donald Fagan's solo album, uh, not only is the album that Gaucho should have been, it is, in my opinion, one of the most quietly underrated masterpieces of the entire 1980s, period, in any genre of music. This is a magnificent record. This is the album that you wanted to hear after Asia. This is an optimistic, happy, upbeat album. Mm-hmm. It's silly at times. There's a goofy cover of Ruby Baby, which is this sort of like, you know, Honky Tonk Lieber Stoller song from the 60s or the late 50s that he turned into this, like, you know, like really slick jazz rock epic. And it's hilarious. New Frontier, The Nightfly, the title track, and then IGY, most of all, which is the first song. Get your ticket to that wheel in space while there's time. I love this album. This album is the exact inversion of everything that Gaucho was. And I'm just amazed that it could come out right after such a depressing and, and exhausted release. I, I, I don't know what you think of it, Scott. I know, Eli, you're a big fan. Yeah, I'll, I'll just give two cents really quick, which is I, I have not spent uh, as much time with the Nightfly as I had the rest of the Steely Dan catalog. But the songs I've, I've heard, and the songs, I mean, I've heard them all, but the songs that I come back to, uh, I, I do think are, are, you mentioned, quite a bit brighter, lighter. 
uh, more accessible, far more energy. You know, the, the song cycle kind of is, is thinking going back to his youth and as a, as a radio guy, you know, I love the cover. I love the Nightfly where the, the fictional station, the fictional TV sh- or fictional radio show is kind of described. So you say that there's a race of men in the trees. You're for tough <laughs> legislation. Thanks for calling. I wait all night for calls like these. Yes, I've been there. I've been there. Uh, New Frontier is a really neat song. And, and the single, as you mentioned, IGY, the, uh, stands for International Geophysical Year. Um, it all kind of harkens back to that th- late 50s into mid-60s uh, era that Fagan's <laughs> writing about. And it's a, it's a fun album. Uh, I, I'm going to have to go back and dig into it a little bit more. Uh, I love this album. Um, I, 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 I put it up there with the finest work that Steely Dan has done. Uh, a couple points about it. First of all, it just the... The, it's almost like even more perfect in terms of recording quality and the intricacy and precision of the studio process as Asia, so much so that this this is the record that engineers believe is sort of the gold standard for um, just audio quality. So keep that in mind. Listen to it on your headphones. Um, I agree with you that Nightfly is just a, a wonderful song. Um, I love that line. You say there's a race of men in the trees once you turn your radio down. I mean, it's great. Thanks for calling. Um, I want to say the last two tracks I just adore. The Goodbye Look. This is almost like Out of the Quiet American by Graham Greene. Uh, it's a song that I listened to a lot when I, uh, on one of my reporting tours in Iraq, when it was, the war was not going very well, because it's about how everything looks just fine, uh, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, I believe I just got the goodbye look. There's right before they're going to kick um, the colonialists out, so to speak, even though I, we, well, we won't talk about the Iraq war right now, but um, I don't agree with the left's critique of it, let's just say that. Um, but I, I just, it, it, and it's this sort of really almost kind of a catchy marimba, you know, fused, um, it, it's a jazz song, but it's brilliant. I know what happens. I read the book. I believe I just got the good fun. 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 Won't you pull me a Cuban breeze, Gretchen? then walk between the raindrops is a great quick um you know sort of uh, uh an organ led jazz number that um is really um it, it sort of feels like falling in love and it's I, I love that song um and i just i i very much recommend it um uh i i one of the things i really admire about fagan is the his ability to evoke um, specific places and times, you know, just through the little lyrical twists. And he really captures that on this. Um, uh, you know, you've mentioned Ruby Baby, which I adore. And, and IGY is a, is a very catchy track, which, um, you know, I think, you know, stands up to this day. So I, it's, it's one of my favorites. And uh, I, I almost wish that this had been Gaucho, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it wasn't. Um, but anyway, uh, it's, it's, it's a great record again. Uh, and I put it on my essential list. All right, so quickly before we wrap up, do we have any thoughts on the two 
reunion Steely Dan albums. They finally got back together uh, in the mid-90s to tour. Didn't release anything for a while, but in 2000, came out with a new album of new material called Two Against Nature. And then followed that up a couple years later with Everything Must Go. I will just point out this. Uh, I think Two Against Nature is actually a pretty good album. Kicks up right where they left off sonically with Gaucho. Uh, but I also think it's hilarious that in the same year that the Marshall Mathers LP, uh, Radiohead's Kid A, and uh, Midnight Vultures by Beck were all nominated for Best Album of the Year for the Grammys. It was Steely Dan, Two Against Nature, that ended up winning. And I think we all know why. Uh, I think we can just look at the average age of the voters and figure out what happened there. Um, I've given these both some chances. I, I don't really like them all that much. Uh, Two Against Nature, um, specifically, a lot of it fades into the background for me. You know, Eli kind of talked about that that real sharp edge that, that you have to walk uh, between being really uh, steely dan classic and, and being uh, layered and interesting. Uh, and other side, you kind of have that jazzy fusion that you might hear on an elevator as you head to floor 52. And I think too much of Two Against Nature just sort of fades in back. The track, uh, the standout track that I like, I do like, is the title track, Two Against Nature. It's this kind of mambo shuffle beat. It's got a very catchy chorus to it. I think that's a song that, that stands with some of their really good material and uh, almost gothic from Two Against Nature. I also like quite a bit. But I, I think both these albums are, you know, notches below virtually all of the uh, the original um, the original core albums, I would just say that um, I really like the first track, "Gaslighting Abbey," um, as a kind of you know it reminds me a little bit of "Hey 19 and just it, it's a fun funk song. And credit to uh, Becker and Fagan for much like Showbiz Kids kind of you know predicted the era of selfies and the YouTubers. Um, you know, in two thousand they they were talking about gaslighting, which is now. <laughs> Uh, you cannot escape it in our political writing today. So, um, you know, I just was sort of note that. You can choose the music. I'll set up my gear. Later on, we'll chill and watch the fireworks from I I agree. I think the point about um, the, how they won the Grammy that year, uh, it is it's a little bit like you know giving Carl Malone the MVP. It's like you know you're rewarding a body of work uh, as opposed to that clearly wasn't the best album of the year, and it wasn't as relevant in terms of music. Um, but for those of us who love Steely Dan, we're, I'm very happy they made this. Um, you know, less so with Everything Must Go. Um, which is not as strong, but I do think that Two Against Nature is a pretty good record. And I would say that if you're if you're really into the band as I am, uh, what is it? At Live in America, the the live album that they put out in this period is great, uh, and I I highly recommend it. All right, uh, we come to the portion of the show where all of us give to you, the listener, two key albums and five tracks that you should hear from our band, Steely. Dan, and we always open with our guests. So Eli Lake, columnist for Bloomberg, 
The floor is yours for your two albums and your five songs. Well, this is tough. Um, because I have to say, I vacillate between uh, Katie Lyde, Royal Scam, and Asia. Uh, but I think I'd have to go with Asia for sure and um, Royal Scam. Oh, God, I can't pick. Anyway, I want to say Royal. I want to <laughs> I, I, it's hard for me. But uh, it's Asia and Royal Scam if I had to pick two. And then for my tracks, um, uh, Showbiz Kids off of Countdown to Ecstasy. Uh, I just love that song. And uh, you're kind of always find new stuff in there. Uh, Bad Sneakers and Dr. Wu from Katie Lied. Uh, Sign in Stranger from The Royal Scam. And uh, there's so many great rec- tracks off of Asia. But, and this is kind of sentimental for me. But uh, I love Black Cow. And uh, I'd I never get tired of hearing it. So those are my five. Uh, all right. So the albums, I'm, I'm fairly certain that Jeff is also going to tell you that Asia is, is one, two, one of the two you have to have. And I don't necessarily dispute that, but I'm going to make sure Pretzel Logic is uh, represented somewhere among uh, the, the, you know, the group of six albums. It's uh, from start to finish, just a fantastic one. Uh, again, we have 11 songs, about 33 minutes, about, about as tight of songwriting as you'll, you'll find from Steely Dan through their, uh, through their years. Some really good highlights, uh, which uh, at least a couple are going to be on my five songs in just a moment. Charlie Freak is one that is not going to be on the list, but one I think you should check out. Berrytown is great, too. Pretzel Logic is, is outstanding. And I uh, will follow that up with The Royal Scam, which I enjoy quite a bit and, and laid down those reasons during the earlier portion uh, of the show. Five songs I think you, you need to hear. Kid Charlemagne from The Royal Scam. Again, that one's been in my head for the past week or so as we prep for this podcast. It's just got a scintillating guitar solo from uh, Larry Carlton. And the lyrics and the, and the narrative story put together by Fagan is fantastic. And the delivery is, too. Peg from Asia. Uh, if nothing else, just for that wonderful guitar picking that I just kind of picked up on uh, during the, uh, the the prep for this episode. Peg's a great uh, song. Michael McDonald in the background, fantastic guitar solo. Uh, from Pretzel Logic, I'm going to grab two. Again, sometimes the hit is a hit for a reason. Ricky, Don't Lose That Number is uh, the most successful single of the band's career, uh, number four on the charts. It's got a fantastic melody and kind of that, that early 70s jazzy rock, very well defined by Ricky Don't Lose That Number. You tell yourself you're not my kind, but you don't even know your mind, and you could have a change of heart. Ricky Don't Lose That Number, you don't want to call me. Any major dude will tell you as well from Pretzel Logic, uh, that smooth California sound, very tender, minor key melody from uh, from Steely Dan, and again, one where the uh, emotions are, are kind of on the sleeve, comforting a friend going through a very hard time. And finally, the, the fifth song from the first album, Can't Buy a Thrill. Uh, I'm still not sure that they ever recorded a song better than Reeling in the Years, uh, Elliot Randall's guitar solo. Uh, again, uh, perhaps apocryphal, but Jimmy Page's favorite of all time. That rhythm, that melody, that chorus, 
Uh, it still might be my favorite Dan song uh, of them all. Jeff, to you. All right. Well, my first choice for uh, uh, the record is, and I've said it enough times that it shouldn't be any surprise, going to be Countdown to Ecstasy from 1973. It's Steely Dan's second album. It's their most sort of jammed out rock album. And I don't think there is a single bad song on it. Even its weakest track, which is Pearl of the Quarter, it's still got some really, really wonderful things going on in its middle eight and in its chorus. What a magnificent record. Second album would, of course, be Asia. And I think you predicted that correctly. Uh, there's just nothing that can be said against it, so why bother gilding the lily? For my choices of tracks, I am going to be leaning heavily on those two albums. Uh, the first song I would choose is Bodhisattva. It's the opening song off of Countdown to Ecstasy. Um, those those piano jazzy piano chords, the incredible uh, guitar soloing by Denny Diaz and Skunk Baxter, the just really just you know incredibly tight jumping ensemble performance, and those snarky Fagan lyrics. This is basically my ideal version of a Steely Dan album track. Uh, the other one I would choose from that album is the Boston Rag. Uh, it is uh, the opposite end. It is a very long loping slowly developing kind of epic rock song about you know the losers living in a flat and hanging out and doing drugs and getting into trouble which is uh basically the story of steely dan's lives before they became uh, rock <laughs> musicians uh my third choice would be dr Wu. Uh, i think uh eli and i talked about this song long enough to explain why it's so magnificent uh it could be played on xylophones and trash cans and i think its quality would still come through uh, the version of it that you can find on Katie Lied, uh, however, is perfect in every respect. And uh, I think the chorus is maybe my single favorite chorus of any Steely Dan song. Um, the last two choices come both from Asia. Uh, the first of them is the title track, Asia, uh, which is their finest excursion into the far reaches of jazz rock, probably the most unorthodox thing they ever constructed. Wayne Shorter's saxophone solo and um, uh, Steve Gadd's drum underneath uh, is maybe the instrumental highlight of the entire Steely Dan discography, certainly in terms of guest appearances by other artists. Just magnificent work and, and a truly peaceable song that will take you to a place that is not at all ironically meant to represent, you know, internal peace and escape from, you know, you know the horribly taxing the rat race of the real world. My final choice is Deacon Blues, which we again discussed at length. Um, you know, if they've got a name for the winners of the world, I want a name when I lose. They call Alabama the Crimson Tide, so maybe they should just call us Political Beats. <laughs> <laughs> and there we are, the Political Beats. Look at the career and music of Steely Dan. We thank our guest this week. Check him out at Bloomberg, where he's a columnist. You can find him on Twitter as well, at Eli Lake. Eli, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your love and passion and knowledge of Steely Dan. Truly my uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, great, uh, it's a great podcast, and I'm glad. I'm so happy that you invited me. Thank you. Thank All you, right, sir. Eli, drink your big black cow and get out of here. <laughs> Jeff? <laughs> Jeff, let's do it again next week. I'm up for it if you are. Uh, we'll be here. And you can find all of our old stuff on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or up at nationalreview.com. Subscribe. New episodes on Mondays. Listen, share, enjoy, leave reviews. We, we invite you to. Feedback, comments, uh, at political underscore beats on Twitter is a good place to leave that. We'll interact with you there. 
And remember, this is a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.